Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Sugra Ahmed. Sugra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So tell me a bit about your background. You were born in Burnley in Lancashire, which is in the north of England. So how did you end up being born there. Tell us about Burnley and your grandparents. Well, it's a really interesting connection because my maternal grandfather migrated over from Pakistan, uh, from a part of Pakistan that is called Mirpur. And he migrated over at a time when, um, I guess, Britain was looking to rebuild after World War II. There was an industrial industrial revolution um, in the midst, and they needed a workforce. And so recruiting sergeants would go on their trucks with a big megaphone around these rural villages where they knew that young, strong men lived but actually didn't have many opportunities for jobs and for employment. This was post-partition, which in itself was you know, a huge upheaval, to say the least, for people who lived there. And then there was a building of um, a dam in Mirpur, which again displaced dozens of villages and hundreds and thousands of people. So it was ripe ground to recruit young men to come and work in the factories and the mills of the north in the main. And so my grandfather came on his own. How long did he think he was coming for? He actually thought that he would come for maybe two years three tops and would earn a little bit of money, send it back, go back eventually himself after those two or three years and start a new life for him and his family. And as goes the story for hundreds and thousands of people who came from the subcontinent at that time, and not dissimilar to the Windrush movement um, that, that, that sort of, again, was a driver of, of uh, economic migration and then ultimately settlement and integration uh, for black people in the UK. And so this was the story of uh, Asians, mainly from the subcontinent, Hindus, Sikhs, Muslims in the main, who had fought in World War One and World War Two for their empire and now felt that actually it was time to go to England, work for a little while and then come back. And they saw it as a land of milk and honey, which is a real <laughs> stereotype. Now we can see that. And they would write back to their parents, including my grandfather, and explain how wonderful it was and how you know, wonderful a country it was, but also how the work was really easy and actually it was quite different. And I don't want to be rude about Burnley, but does Burnley, I mean, is it the land of milk and honey? Well, we have a great football team, <laughs> if that counts. <laughs> um, you know, no, it isn't. Even today, it's a, it's a, it's a town that is uh, full of deprivation and that revolution, that boom that happened in the 60s, 70s has disappeared entirely and so you see these big huge dark colored brick factories that are completely empty now some of the windows are smashed through the pigeons sort of coo in and out of the space and and I wonder about all those men hundreds and hundreds of them white and brown who worked in those factories made a living through the most grueling of means but did it because they believed in a better future for their families so your grandfather must have been miserable but all the letters home were like this is good this is fun we're doing well this is all the letters home were positive they didn't want to worry their parents he didn't want to worry his family at all and he wanted them to understand that he was there to support them and that he was having a great time doing that and so it was almost like taking on the burden of the entire family and dealing with the burden that you've got to hand in terms of your lifestyle um, 
and, and trying to cope with all of that. And it created so many problems for that generation in later years, a generation that is now almost finished in the UK. The first generation of Muslims who migrated to the UK has almost completely died. And so it fascinates me to learn from those who are still living what their story was. And there are so many similarities. It's fascinating. It really is. And it excites me. And so he, after some years, I think about six or seven years, was still working away, working double shifts and uh, not really having a social life at all. And I remember hearing stories of when he called my grandmother over, um, the, the, the sort of history speaks for itself, but there was a, a, an act that was passed in Parliament that meant that you could no longer go back to those countries and then come back again and then go back. Either you had to decide to stay on your own, or you could call your families over. And actually, we saw the largest migration in recent times into the UK from the Indian subcontinent, because people felt that I can call my family over and still go back a few years later. But if I decide to stay, I can't annex myself from my family. That's not a choice that I can mm. make. Did I your grandfather ever regret that decision? My grandfather died when I was 12. And so you never really got to ask? I didn't. And, you know, the, the tragic thing is that in recent years, in my work as, as a researcher, I've actually catalogued a whole bunch of stories of first-generation Muslims who migrated to the UK. And it was so poignant that I couldn't speak to my grandfather, and yet I spoke to other people's grandfathers and grandmothers. Um, it was kind of beautiful to learn about my grandfather's story, in partly through my experience with him during those 12 years of my life. Um, and now that I'm much older, I look back on that period with much more intrigue, but also much clearer understanding that when he behaved a certain way, it was because he was enduring this life. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I can't understand how he was always so happy and, and really kind to his grandchildren. Not so much to his children, but certainly <laughs> to his grandchildren. And it was always, always a highlight of our weekends when we would go and visit. Now, did you grow up in a Pakistani community or was it a very mixed community? It was quite mixed, actually. It was very working class. Um, we, When I was about four years old, my parents moved to a nearby town called Blackburn and we lived in a mid-terrace and these terraces were built on hills. And so I grew up, um, you know, playing and dancing and, and running up and down these hilly streets. And, you know, I thought, I thought most of... Or I'm, I thought the whole of the UK was like that, quite frankly. Cobbled streets and um, lots of communities spilling out onto the streets, onto the greens, into the parks, because the houses were so small and the kids needed space to run around. And I think that really helped in my understanding of of other people around me everywhere. And in fact, Emma, one of the, the I think, the most wonderful and influential experiences in those years was my attendance, uh, my schooling at an Anglo-Catholic primary school where we would have assembly in the morning, we would sing hymns. Every Tuesday morning, we would have a church next door that would host us for mass. Uh, and after lunch and at the end of the day, we would say grace, or before lunch, sorry, we would say grace. And I remember all, the, all those prayers off by heart still today. And you know, I remember mentioning to my parents, even though there were very few number of Muslims in the school, or even brown people, to be fair, I remember saying to my parents, you know, there's another child whose parents have sent a note in to say that he shouldn't go to mass. 
why don't you do that for me? Because for me, it felt like I'd get a free period, you know, I'd get some free time, <laughs> I can go to school late. And they, 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 in their very own special way, explained to a, a naive child that the Abrahamic tradition was our tradition and that there was nothing uh, here that was the other. And so I should embrace it. And my teachers at the same time, you know, this is in the 1980s, they were incredibly astute they would stand at the end of the pews and when you when we clasp our hands together in prayer and we point our fingers upwards, they would make a gesture to me to say, cup your hands together because that is the Muslim tradition. And at the time I thought, why are they making me do something different? Because I was too young to know. And now I look back and I think, how transformational was that experience that they gave me this sense of autonomy and sense of deep affection and in the same way, I feel like that's what I have to offer other people in my life and encourage them to offer others too. And that we don't feel a sense of dispossession because people are not behaving exactly the way that we are. We don't feel a sense of um, a lack of confidence and a weakness in any way. The opposite, actually. We should feel strengthened by that experience. I certainly did when I was growing up. And even in, in my adult years, when I've engaged with people formally and, and mainly informally in, in terms of our friendship, I found that that difference can, it can color our lives in a way that we just cannot experience if we live in silos. But often when it comes to identity, there are the labels that others tend to put on us. Did you grow up very comfortable being part of many different identities? Did you grow up comfortable with multiple identities, multiculturalism? I think I felt comfortable with that, but I'm not sure that those around me felt comfortable. And for me, that's a, that's something courageous to admit because I, my neighbours when I was a kid and as I was growing up were wonderful, wonderful people. But I don't think they saw me as somebody that I was... as somebody that was part of their communities. And, you know, when you grow up as a minority, it's really interesting because you can embrace the diversity around you or you can reject it. And in my experience and from my, my learning and my understanding is that most minorities actually learn to accept it. So, for example, my grandfather and his um, uh, the young men that, that were all living together at the time when they were working in the factories and the mills in Burnley, I remember the stories of the fact that they didn't know their neighbours by name, but they knew that Christmas was a really important time in the British calendar and in the Christian calendar, of course. And so they would get Christmas cards and they would write to number 42, Happy Christmas from number three. Um, and they would just post them through the letterbox. And that was, I mean, it's such a powerful engagement. Did they get anything back for Eid? No. So it was a one-way engagement? It was a one-way engagement. I don't think it's unusual for when new communities have migrated. I think they wanted to show their neighbours that we are we are with you, that we understand you, and that we like you. And I, I think they, they probably expected a, something back, maybe not a card, but smiles on the streets, conversations, uh, the sharing of food, as they were accustomed to in terms of where they came from. And I'm not sure that that happened for them well, it didn't happen for them, quite frankly, at such an early period. Now, that that very same community. So my my maternal grandmother still lives in that same house, on a cobbled street. The one of the very few cobbled streets that are left in the north of England, I think. And her neighbours, although the community has changed a lot, her neighbourhood is still quite diverse, and she shares 
food and conversation and sweets and smiles with her neighbours and they, they share the same in return. So until recently, you were head of the Islamic Society of Britain, the first woman to be elected to be the head of a Muslim society. So tell us more about what that society actually does. So the Islamic Society of Britain is unique in that it stands for a British Muslim community that is completely at ease with the people around them. And so it's an, an organization that is rooted in Britain uh, in terms of its language, its ethos, its culture, and um, just the very, I think something that makes us very British is the way in which we approach diversity. We're very different to the USA, to France, to Germany. We have a very strong history of people coming in, whether it's invasions, whether it's migration. <laughs> and I feel that although we're living in testing times today, that we have a very open way of engaging with diversity. And it's easy for people to feel settled, comfortable and at home in Britain, no matter where they may come from. And so for an organization to stand for all of that is not that commonplace, sadly, and a Muslim organization at that. And so I was especially proud not only to be a member of the ISB, whilst, you know, I think what the, for the last decade and a half or thereabouts, but to also volunteer to work in interfaith programs, in uh, campaigns to challenge stereotypes, not, not just for a certain religious community, but for all of our communities, and to engage in programs that helped make life better on the streets of local communities. So whether it was a park cleanup, whether it was a blood drive, um, whether it was raising awareness about something like climate change, I was really proud to be a part of that. So then to go on and be elected as head of that very same organization, just really filled me with a lot of pride, a lot of respect for the people that voted for me. But I was especially proud because I felt like our voice was being heard, that something was working. And so one of the things that we do is build friendships with people of all sorts of different backgrounds. And when I got messages of congratulations and, and support from different communities, that was a real test for me. It was a real message of togetherness, friendship, and that this is our country, this is our nation, and we will make it a great nation. So what percent of Brits are Muslim? Actually, it's a very small number, less than 5%, which is really interesting because I, do, I deliver a lot of training um, to various different civil servants, senior, junior, and so on. And often we uh, run a short quiz at the beginning and try and help them to understand where they're coming from. And one of the questions is what percentage of the British population is Muslim? What do people think? What's the usual sort of estimation? Anything between around 25 to 38%, which is extremely high if you think about it, more than a quarter of the population. And for me, that directly connects with the perception that we have. It's It may be Muslims in the UK today. It may be a different community here in the US. But actually, when we look at statistics, they tell us a very different story compared with the perhaps the media output that we're exposed to or the conversations that we're exposed to in our own communities. So what does Islam mean to you? How important is religion in your everyday life or how you live your life? Religion for me is very important. And I'm very open and honest about that. From a very early age, I was in a school where religion mattered. It wasn't just 
a religious school but that behaved in a secular way. It was a religious school that behaved in a religious way. I feel very privileged to have experienced that at such a young age. I think it's it's transformed me. I then went to a secondary school um, from during my teenage years, basically, that was much more secular. And it was at that time that I was exploring my own religious identity without even realizing it. So I remember asking my parents at one point, it was the month of Muharram, which is very, very special for both Sunni and Shia communities. Uh, so basically for all Muslims. And I remember a friend of mine at school talking about how she was Shia and they would go to a different mosque and they would they would have certain things that they would do during the month of Muharram. And I came home asking my parents, why don't we do that? Why are we missing out? And my parents were phenomenal because they explained, well, if you want to, you can go with your friend. I don't know of any other of my friends who were curious enough to have this conversation with their parents, but I really respected my parents now. I respect them now more than ever for the responses that they gave me. That made me more open. It made me much more confident in embracing a religious identity. Uh, it isn't something that was forced on us when we were children. Um, my parents were regular parents, worked very hard, put food on the table, made sure the bills were paid, um, engaged with the community, with the neighbors, and built a real sense of camaraderie in their neighborhood. Uh, were, were very well respected amongst their relatives. And by extension, we were also very well respected. And so it gave me the freedom to really explore. That then propelled at university. I went, um, I went to uni university in the Midlands, and I came across the Islamic Society. And sadly, I found that it, 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 it didn't do anything for me. I felt completely disconnected from the way in which they were practicing their Islam, or at least the, the veneer that I was seeing. People dressed in a particular way, behaved in a particular way, were very, very segregated and had a very conservative understanding as to a woman's role and a man's role within your religious um, practice. And that just, just, just did not connect with how my parents had brought me up. And so instinctively, I didn't have anything to do with them at the same time that I realized that we we as religious communities have have great people in our midst, but we also have crazy people in our midst. And so I came across other societies that belong to other religious communities. And I thought, OK, they also don't connect with me in, in terms of gender equality, issues around feminism, issues around um just being creative in your understanding of who you are and contextual theology was completely absent. So what does Islam mean for me today as a Muslim in 21st century Britain? And, you know, my time and my context have a huge role to play in how I understand who I am as a Muslim woman, who I am as a person of spirit, a spirituality, a person of faith, but also a person who believes that there should be a sense of a sense of justice, equality, and fairness for everybody, no matter who they are. And sadly, some of the ways in which people are choosing to uh, very loudly speak about Islam just does not resonate at all, not just with my understanding of Islam as a young person, but then later when I went on to study Islam, I did my master's in Islamic studies, courses in Islamic jurisprudence, had endless conversations with theologians, lay people, people of different faiths and colours about what religion means in today's society. But it seems that your parents were very influential in shaping what it meant to lead a Muslim life. Did the mosque play a role in your life growing up or was it really from your parents that you gained that sense of what Islam is? My experience with the mosque was not a positive one at all. 
it was quite devastating actually looking back and it was devastating because it was something that my parents felt that they had to do send send me and my siblings to mosque for a couple of hours every, after school monday to friday and i didn't feel like i was missing out on something because i was still in the netball team in the rounders team at school and so mosque came after that i still did my homework i did well at school so i didn't feel like i was missing out on extracurricular activities but i really wished that my experience 10 hours a week am i in a in a specific space can be really quite powerful yeah. on a young person and you know i felt that the mosque was harsh my teacher was quite uh quite cruel actually and uh didn't understand how to teach at all so these were people who had learned how to read the quran who understand who understood islamic studies at a reasonable level but had zero teaching qualifications at all, and didn't come from within the UK and so i would go to school during the day and i would notice that if teachers admonished children for for whatever however slight the admonishment was they would be asked to make eye contact and not making eye contact was disrespectful and then you know we would go to the mosque in the evening and if a child was admonished you were asked not to make eye contact and lower your gaze so this is a very small example of the schizophrenic lifestyle that we learned me in my in my generation learned to negotiate at a very young age the mosques have changed since then sadly not the majority of them i have to be honest about that and i i really hope and pray that those young people who are going to mosques or are, you know now many of them have just 2 hours on a sunday or an hour on a saturday morning uh many are taught by their own parents because they don't want to send them into the institution but many who do go into mosques now i hope and pray that they have a much more positive uplifting experience than i did so when we look around the world at the moment it looks a pretty scary place and there's always fear of the other do you think that religion and people of faith can play more of a role in making our world more peaceful, more tolerant, more understanding. The short answer to that question is yes. Absolutely. If we if we take a look at uh, whether it's a census or whether it's any other statistical gathering of information, people who belong to a faith community, however they may feel about it, but the fact that they take Christian, Jewish, Hindu, uh uh muslim on a form tells us that the vast majority of the world still follow a religious spirituality or an ideology or both and so i think they have a fundamental role to play and i think if we take a look around the world today a lot of people may criticize um religious ideologies for being the uh, inspiration behind some of the the violence and the hatred that we have in the world i think it's much more complex than that i think there is religious ideology that is being um Uh, abused to an extreme degree but i think it's really about power and land and control ultimately whether it's a state that's involved in a particular war or whether it's a group of people who who um who claim to follow a religious ideology but i i also see around the world on the ground in communities the kind of communities that we we live in and we grew up in that there is a need to be able to trust political institutions religious institutions again and i think a lot has been done to damage our trust with those institutions so for me the challenge now is and and i embrace this challenge is to encourage people including myself 
to that when we look at other people, whether somebody has tattoos or piercings or dresses a certain way, doesn't dress a certain way, that we take a moment and put our labels to one side and talk to that person. And that includes people that we may feel are totally different to us. In fact, that's where the conversation becomes even more exciting, to be fair. So I think religious communities have a role to play. But I think whoever you are, wherever you are in the world, there's definitely a role to play just in terms of getting to know your neighbours, your communities, people at the school gates. Because survey after survey, study after study shows us that it's people meeting people that creates change. And so we shouldn't put our entire faith in institutions and in charismatic global leaders. They have their place. But we have a much more important conversation to be had on the ground. Sugar Ahmed, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.